Welcome to Meet Your New New York City Council. I'm Jim Carney, Professor of Journalism and Media Studies at Lehman College. This is a series of interviews designed to introduce the people of the Bronx to their returning and incoming New York City Council members. This series is produced by the Journalism and Media Studies Department at Lehman College, City University of New York, in conjunction with City Limits. It includes a series of interviews done by journalism students with the council members themselves. Next up in our series of conversations is a conversation with Karina Ana Sanchez, the council member representing Morris Heights, Washington Heights, Fordham and Kingsbridge. Her newsmaker conversation was with Lehman Journalism students Michelle Martinez and Adrian Curry. Marina Sanchez, we're so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. Excited to be with y'all. What does this victory mean to you and to the other women and young girls who have who look up to you. This is my very first time running for office, running for city council. And it was it was no easy feat. In my race, there were two women running, but there were four men running. And uh, throughout the throughout the process, you know, a lot of us who were running, including myself, you know, we had to at each step, you know, shatter people's uh, biases and kind of push back on on notions. For example, one thing that I hear a lot from folks is, Pirina, you're so young. I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate that people think I look young, <laughs> uh, but I'm not that young, right? I'm, I'm 33. There are members of many members of Congress, um, you know, who are who are this age. And so there's something about just being a woman, uh, being a woman in politics, uh, that that means that you have to face so many barriers. And the fact that this New York City Council in 2022 is going to be majority women and majority people of color is it just says something so great about the city of New York that we are finally, you know, choosing a representative body that is actually representative of the electorate and of the residents of the city of New York. So we're not all the way there. There are many, you know, many categories of, of social identity that we still do not have represented uh, in leadership ranks, but this is a really big deal. It means that we're we're at the table because when you're not at the table, you're on the menu, but we're at the table and we are, we are going to be standing up for, for women's issues, for families and for all other issues that are also uh, women's issues just, just by nature of, of us, you know, having residents in the city of New York. So you have said on your website, I'm an Afro-Dominicana from the hood and I'm here to fight for us. What exactly does fighting look like? What specific action do you plan to take in that fight? And how will being an Afro-Dominicana from the hood play a role in serving uh, District 14? I was born and raised in this neighborhood. You know, my family came over to to New York City and, and specifically to the Bronx in the late 1970s. And since then and, and before then, you know, our community has been one that has faced so much disinvestment, right? From banks choosing not to uh, lend uh, to to black and brown people who are searching uh, for opportunities to buy a home in neighborhoods like this to government, you know, uh, in the 1970s when the Bronx was burning, specifically deciding that they were not going to uh, fund firehouses and they were going to close down firehouses and just allow the Bronx to continue to burn, you know, to to the present day where where many of our schools are underfunded, where our kids don't have access to after school programs, to the list goes on and the list going on results in our outcomes, right? It results in housing insecurity. It results in 
educational attainment that is that is lower, that is blocked access to opportunities, right? And so when I say, you know, that I'm an Afro-Dominicana from the hood and I'm, I'm here to fight for us, I have those very specific realities in the crosshairs, right? Those opportunities that we have been blocked from uh, will be the very first lens that, that I have in terms of working with the rest of the city council, working with the mayor-elect to ensure that, you know, a community like ours, and, and not just us, right? I'm, I'm fighting for, for all of New York City and people who have been left behind all across the city. Uh, we're, we're making sure that we are front and center in, in the mind. And so just to give a few specific examples, one is that in, in this district, we are, uh, we have a median income of $21,000 per person. Uh, we are almost 98% people of color, right? Whether that is of Latinx origin or that is of African and African-American descent. And when you put those realities together and you cross it over with our bad out- educational outcomes, our housing insecurity, our health outcomes that are, that are lagging behind our asthma rates, et cetera, then you understand that we have to fight for policies that are going to change course, right? So it's not just putting a bandaid on it. You know, I... I was very active in in sort of uh, fighting food insecurity during the pandemic. You know, we were out there, I gained so many muscles and and with so many volunteers, you know, distributing food. But it's not just the food distribution in the moment, which is important right now. It is the long term. How do you fight food insecurity in the long term? It's about wealth. It's about fighting that inequality. It's about good jobs. You know, it's about stable homes. And so, you know, one specific thing that I really care about is bringing more homeownership opportunities and opportunities to build equity into into the Bronx and into other other working class uh, communities in the city so that we're not just, you know, saying we're going to fight this, we're going to fight that, but you're actually putting money and wealth into people's pockets so that you're lifting them up into the middle class and beyond. When you say equity, what do you mean by that? One of my favorite sort of ways to uh, explain what I mean by equity is is actually this I don't know who actually drew it, but it's this cartoon and and bear with me if you're listening, you know, sort of close your eyes and imagine. Um, that you have three kids uh, at a baseball game and one is, you know, two feet tall, one is three feet tall and one is four feet tall. Equality would mean that you give each one a little crate so they can stand on and they can look over the fence to be able to see the game. Equity would mean that the, the child that is two feet tall, that is much, much shorter than the other two, that that person, that child gets more than the other two in order to see the baseball game. And so for me, equity is about you know, rectifying the harms of the past by trying to channel resources into community in, in the in the way that is going to get them to a level playing field so they can actually compete and be the best versions of themselves, right? So it's, it's not just about, okay, everybody needs to, to get one crate, everybody needs to get $100, everybody needs to, you know, receive a notice of an application via Twitter. No, it's not about, you know, just providing the same thing to everyone. Equity is really about understanding where community members are at, what community members have been through both historically and on a personal level and targeting your policies and your policy design to help them reach the, the level playing field that allows them to compete. So it's it's much more than just giving everyone the same thing. So maybe we can move to 
um, affordable housing. I, I know you campaigned on um, making affordable housing more accessible to um, low-income communities. Um, what are your ideas on how to make that happen? I'm gonna I'm gonna have to have the, the dream team assemble uh, for this in some ways um, because I I always say <laughs> this is pretty funny. I, I say to our neighbors like I didn't run for emperor of District 14. I ran for a city council member, and what that means is <laughs> that I can't do anything pretty much on my own. It all has to be done in coalition. It has to be done with the mayor. We are a democracy. So campaign promises are to fight and to do everything you can so that, you know, you can bring back the resources. But what are some of those items that that I'm going to be fighting for? So I'll start with, you know, sort of uh, the the big picture, right? So I always uh, share this analogy of an emergency room. When you go into an emergency room, if you're coming in with a headache, maybe you've had that headache for three weeks and you're like, wow, fine. Like, I just need to go to the emergency room because this headache might be symptomatic of something much deeper and I, I need to get care, right? When that when you are in triage and somebody else comes in next to you at the same time and they have a gunshot wound, we have to tend to that gunshot wound so that that person doesn't die. Even though your issue and your headache is, it could be very serious. You know, we have to be able to prioritize in the moment to save lives while never losing sight of the bigger picture. And the same thing happens in housing policy and housing. There is an emergency now. There is a gunshot wound now. And that is the fact that so many people are facing eviction, that people are unstable, that people are, you know, being threatened of of being displaced from, from their communities, from their homes that they've been there for so long. And so there are two different policies that are about addressing the gunshot wound that is that instability. One is something that we we all fought for during the pandemic, which was this movement to cancel rent, which resulted at the state level in the ERAP program, the Emergency Rental Assistance Program. So we have to continue to make sure that we have resources available to, it's it's like like the bandage, right? It's not addressing the fact that there is a problem of deep gun violence that resulted in you getting shot, but it is stopping your bleeding right now, making sure that you make it. And so ERAP and canceling rent and policies that are about, you know, just stabilizing you in the moment, those are really important. Those are very critical, you know, but at the same time, you know, we have to take the longer view. And we have to understand like what is happening that so many people are facing eviction, that so many people are unstable in their homes. And that's when you start to get to that question of what is causing that? What is causing that instability? And that is inequality. I see the root cause of the housing crisis in our community as a deep inequality, as I said, caused by an ongoing history of greed, of your blocked access to wealth building opportunities for people of color in this country, right? Not even just in the Bronx, but in this country. So that's why I really care a lot about home ownership um, and making sure that when the city, you know, which historically, at least for the past eight years, or maybe a little bit uh, more than that, um, when the city invests in affordable housing, we're not just building more rental opportunities where people are going to go right to the brink of what they can afford, which is 30% of their income, you know, but instead of that rental, those rentals, they were actually bringing families, you know, into home ownership opportunities, and they're building that wealth, right? And so legit, I promise you neighbors, there is a way to do this. I just need your support to to fight for this. And that is that when the city is making choices about where it's going to put its dollars uh, to address the the housing crisis, that we don't put them into rentals only, that we also put them into homeownership. So we subsidize uh, development um, in a way that is uh, bringing community ownership, um, 
individual ownership. Uh, there's models called limited equity models that you know ensure that when you buy a unit and you resell it, yeah, you're gonna make some money because that's the point, you know, to, to help have you build some wealth. But also you are going to be able to have that unit be affordable to the next family, you know, that that moves in there. So so that you're you know spreading that opportunity to to build equity among neighbors. So and affordable housing is one thing, and I take it, I guess NYSHA is another. It's a, it's sort of its own thing, but it, it ties into it. NYSHA has had problems now for decades with um, poor living conditions, maintenance, repairs, um, and other um, things. One may say it's really an impossible fix. Um, what's your take? Um, NYCHA, NYCHA is, you know, first of all, I, I, I want to push on that point because what you said is, is a problem in the way that NYCHA has been talked about. New York City Housing Authority, public housing. Um, it is a part of the whole ecosystem of housing, right? It, it is a part of the whole ecosystem of stabilizing our communities. NYCHA in many parts of the city is the last bastion of affordability, is the last place that you can actually find an affordable unit in parts of Manhattan, right? And in parts of Brooklyn. So we have to, you know, definitely protect the New York City Housing Authority housing stock. And what, what has happened with NYCHA, right? So decade after decade, year after year, you know, for every dollar that New York City Housing Authority apartment needs, right, to, you know, fund the, the heating costs um, and paints, you know, and make sure that the roof doesn't have leaks and all of that. For every dollar that a NYCHA unit has needed, it's gotten like 60 or 70 cents on that dollar, right, in terms of subsidy and investment. So people are paying their rent. By definition, if you live in NYCHA, you are only paying 30% of your income in, in, uh, in rent. That was the way that the program was designed. That's the way that it should work. And the idea was that the federal government, and government in general would step in and pay the rest of the funds. And what has happened is that the federal government year after year, decade after decade, has not stepped in and has not paid for their full um, extent of, of their duty to maintain the conditions in NYCHA. And so now, 30, 40 years later, you have a, a NYCHA that has leaking roofs, that has broken boilers, that results in no heat, no hot water in the winters, that you know has lead um, in, in its paint without addressing those conditions year after year. And so I the way that I see it, you know, there, there are a, a slew of problems, and I'm sort of simplifying it to the most important in my view. This the crux of the issue here is funding. The crux of the issue here is government and leaders saying, we care about NYCHA. We care about the, you know, largely black and brown people, not all, but largely black and brown people that live in the in this affordable housing stock. And we are going to put money in here. You know, and so if if we are actually able to shake, <laughs> shake the federal government and say, hey, come on, like you, you have to invest, you have to, this is your responsibility, this is your duty, then we should be able to really turn those conditions around. And so, you know, last Friday, there was a, a vote on the infrastructure plan, $1.2 trillion that will be going uh, into the states and cities all over the country from the federal government. That's going to, that's going to have a big impact. It's going to be very helpful to NYCHA, um, you know, in order, in order to address some of those deep conditions, but it doesn't stop there. You know, we have to, we have to use our money smart. We have to, you know, also think about how we improve management, we have to be creative and, and all of that. But I would say most importantly, you know, at least for me, is that as we address the issues in NYCHA, as we, you know, are able to bring down resources from the federal government and the state government, we have to center the residents and we have to say, what do you all want? You all have been living in these conditions for a long time. 
what is it that you want to see out of your apartments, your apartment buildings, your neighborhoods, um, and how can we make sure that as we improve NYCHA and bring it up to code, you know, that your voices are centered. So it's it's really an issue of resources, um, and we're going to be making some strides uh, on that front, but the battle isn't over, and we have to make sure that the tenants um, are have a seat at the table and, and are driving the discussions about the improvements. Do you have a, an opinion on private sector moving NYCHA into, I think it's happening Absolutely. You know, I my my general philosophy on affordable housing and government and government subsidy is that the public sector and, and nonprofits and communities, we should be the ones that are ensuring that there is affordable housing stock, right? So public housing should stay public and uh, and affordable housing should be built without a profit motive, right? If there is a development company that is coming in, in into a project to build affordable housing, but they have the expectation that they're going to make a pretty penny off of it. That's wrong. Something is off there. Like there shouldn't be a profit motive in these debates, right? And, and in these projects. And so for me, you know, there's something called the Rental Assistance Demonstration Project uh, Program or RAD uh, that is being used all across the country uh, for, all, for nearly a decade now to convert um, public housing from Section 9, which is just a fancy way of saying, you know, where it is in the U.S. federal code into Section 8 which is, a, you know, people know it more because of the vouchers, but Section 8 also just refers to where the program is written in the, in the U.S. federal code, right? So when you, uh, when you flip um, a public housing building from Section 9, uh, sorry, from Section 9, which is, you know, to say that the federal government is, is responsible for the full subsidy to Section 8, which is to say that it is a private company or just not the federal government. It could be a nonprofit. It could be a public entity. Just not government is going to be running the show, Section 9 versus Section 8. There's many different ways to do that. And so just, just to give you an example, you know, there have been RAD conversions, RAD, Rental Assistance Demonstration Pro uh, Program. There have been RAD conversions that have the, the government partner with private sector entities and there have also been RAD conversions that have the federal government uh, partner with public sector entities, community organizations, nonprofit organizations. So for me, you know, I, I believe in the in the latter model that we shouldn't have the profit motive into fixing public housing. We barely have enough money to fix it. Like, how can you pay also for the profits? You can't. Right. So, you know, we, we should be keeping public housing public. And the way that you do that is if you have to leave it from Section nine, you know, that's still going to be on the table. Then the partners that come, you know, as a part of this should be coming from the nonprofit sector and the community. I'm a big nerd, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great. We appreciate that. Um, so we're going to switch the topic off to uh, gentrification. So what do you think about gentrification in the Bronx and how do you plan to tackle it? I have a class uh, on gentrification that I teach at, at the Pratt Institute. And what I always do on the first day of class is I ask all of the students to go around the table and define what gentrification is. And when you go around the table, if it's 10 different you know, students, you'll hear 10 different perspectives. And it ranges from, you know, it's from white, it's it's when white people come into a neighborhood that is black and brown, um, and, and that's gentrification. Or, you know, somebody else will say, no, 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 it is when rich people of any color come into a neighborhood that is low income, and that's gentrification. And then somebody else will have something different, and somebody else will have something different, right? And so for me, you know, I always 
I, I love doing that because there's elements of truth in, in all of the different uh, explanations that you hear. But fundamentally at its core, gentrification, you know, in the 1964 Ruth Glass original definition, gentrification is when wealth comes into a place where there isn't wealth. When the gentry move into a place where there beforehand were no gentry and what happens as a result of the gentry moving in. And what happens and, and the, the thing that is that has a negative consequence is the displacement. It is losing ownership of your of your community, whether that's literally you're being displaced from your home or your the businesses change around you and become more expensive or you know whatever the case may be. And so for me, when you talk about gentrification and displacement, it's really about that displacement question and stopping it. I am of the mind that we, we need to continue to build in the city of New York. I want to see more affordable units, you know, built built up everywhere. And I, I do think that there is a problem when you live in a building and you, you never have a, a, like I did where I grew up, right? I didn't know any professionals when I was growing up at all. Like there were none, you know, there was this one person that was like a, you know, worked, worked as a, a male person, but that was the closest thing. Like the teachers that were in my schools were foreign to me. I, I couldn't understand, you know, how they grew up and how they got to where they were and all of that. So, so I do think that there's value in deconcentrating poverty, but you can't deconcentrate by displacing. And so at the end of the day, for me, you know, gentrification and displacement, that whole debate is about how do you give people roots to stay in their communities, to continue to own their communities, to respect them for, for staying there when nobody else did, when the Bronx was burning, for example. And so that's, again, you know, it, it kind of goes back to this ownership theme. Um, you know, that's why I really, you know, strongly support ownership by community, you know, whether there's there's something called the community land trust, where literally the community owns a piece of land um, and you build on it and you build affordable housing um, or or individual families, you know, coming into ownership so that they can be like this piece of paper right here. This says this is my community. So, you know, for me, it's it's all about giving that ownership and support to to the lower income families that that may have been there for a long time and giving them that respect uh, for for having stayed in their community all that time. What are some projects or ideas that you're working on or planning to work on? Oh, so many. <laughs> so let's see. I mean, I, I I won't beat the dead horse with talking about ownership. Um, there's there's a couple of, of bills and legislative uh, mechanisms to, to push that forward. Um, I also, you know, in in the the sort of vein of thinking about, you know, how do you fight inequality? Literally, you put you put money in people's pockets. <laughs> um, along that vein, I'm I'm also really passionate and you know looking forward to working on the economic development side of policy in, in our community. So one is that we have um, a ginormous building that is a technical term uh, called the Kingsbridge Armory here in the neighborhood uh, that has essentially been underutilized for nearly 30 years. And that building is you know has an incredible history. Was the UN United Nations um, home to the United Nations at one point is the biggest armory in the world. In the 80s, they, they used to do hip hop concerts there and things like that. And most recently, it was, it was a food hub. But if we could actually realize the full potential of that building, then we're talking about hundreds of jobs, hundreds of permanent jobs, not to mention the construction jobs. You know, we're talking about you know, a use that provides community facility space uh, for, for the community so that our kids can have something to do um, after school. You know, way, way too many 
over a close to 83% of kids who are lower income don't have access to any sort of after school program after school. So something like the Kingsbridge Armory can can bring jobs, can bring community facility space, can can bring so much to a neighborhood. And so I'm really focused on projects like that that can be transformational in the community. And we wanted to um, cover education, but you know because of time, you know we're we're not going to be able to. But if you had something that you wanted to say about education, um, the floor is yours. The one quick thing I will say is that we had a legislative victory in Albany last year where the campaign for fiscal equity is supposed to finally you know, bring um, funding parity to lower income schools, which is fantastic. And we have to fight you know, to make sure the implementation of that is as promised. Um, but my, one, you know, one of my big focuses on on education, the education front, is making sure that you know we get to the closest that we can to universal after school programs, uh, bringing more community schools, which you know have nonprofits in the neighborhood partner with the school leadership, and then provide like a holistic support for our families and our students, just so that we are we're seeing people as a whole, right? We're seeing our kids as a whole. And we're we're not just worried about how they are performing on tests, but we're we're worried about their overall well-being. And then so, you know, helping them to, to reach their full potential in our schools. What's one change that your constituents can now look forward to? Um, and what can your colleagues expect from you? So neighbors, my constituents, um, you can expect an, an office, a, a district office that is going to be doing every single thing that we can all mighty five or six of us that work in that office. Um, We're going to do everything that we can to attend to your concerns when you visit our office. It's going to be the people's office. You know, you you walk in there, it's it's your it's your home. And we're going to be deeply partnering with our community based organizations and strengthening the networks among us so that if you have a housing crisis or, you know, if your son, you know, or daughter ends up on on the wrong side of, you know, uh, an issue, you know, ends up criminal justice involved, that we are able to galvanize and mobilize to, to help you solve the, the issues in front of you right away. So, so a lot of organization, a lot of civic in, involvement. I want to do more block parties, more barbecues, just so that we can build community among us. And my colleagues, um, my colleagues, what, what you can expect from me is someone who is going to listen, uh, someone who is going to ask a lot of you on behalf of my community and communities that look like mine, but also someone who is going to be there for you. Um, and going to back uh, back the the initiatives that you that you say are the most important for your corner of the city. So looking forward to to working with all of you. And whew, we got we got a lot to do. Well, thank you so much for having a conversation with us today. <laughs> Great, thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you, Councilwoman. It's... That still sounds so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Good day. You've been listening to Meet Your New New York City Council, a special production of the Lehman College Journalism and Media Studies Department in conjunction with City Limits. This program was written and reported by journalism students of Lehman College. Special production assistance was provided by City Limits Online and Spanish language editor and reporter Daniel Parra. Engineering assistance was provided by the Bronx Journal engineer Yves Dussault. Special thanks to Professor Thomas O'Hanlon, Chair of the Lehman Journalism Department, and Dr. James Mann, Dean of the Lehman College School of Arts and Humanities. This program was produced and edited by me. I'm Jim Carney. For more information about the Journalism and Media Studies program, contact us at 
jms at lehman.cuny.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening.